I was really playing with the idea of solidity and surface versus what is behind the surface, thinking about how we engage with the landscape. And it tends to be in this very superficial kind of way. You know, if the landscape looks beautiful, we assume that everything's fine. You know, <laughs> like if we don't if we don't see trash and we don't see a giant strip mine, we assume, oh, this place is unpolluted and, you know, untouched by man. Well, no place is untouched by man. You know, there's microplastic particles up at the tops of the highest mountains and at the bottom of the ocean. Like we've touched we've touched all of it at this point. Seeing and consuming the landscape with our eyes is a main way that we kind of process the landscape. And so having landscapes that look beautiful is still something that's very important to us. We value having these pristine looking landscapes. We like knowing that they're there so that we can go and sort of reconnect with this thing that's larger than us and, you know, sort of the pure origins of our existence. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 254th episode, I'm very excited to be joined by Karen Mintzmoyer, who spoke with me from Pittsburgh, and we talk all about her work, which explores the relationships between people, humans, and the natural environment, the ways that we manipulate and attempt to control it. And we talk about that through a variety of media that Karen explores, including sculpture, installation, public work, as well as design. And of course, that's all coming up in the interview. Definitely take some time and check out her website, KarenMintzmoyer.com, and follow her on Instagram at Karen.Mintzmoyer. We'd like to note real quick that Karen was selected as one of our professional competition winners last year in 2020 by our juror Liz Tran, so we're very excited to share her work and to talk all about it. Also excited to announce that our 2021 student competition is now open. So if you are currently enrolled as an undergraduate or graduate visual artist, you should apply for this interview. It's also open to artists graduating in the last year in 2020. Our juror for this year's student competition is Kendra Balgren, who is the director and curator at James May Gallery, also a fabulous artist. Check out jamesmaygallery.com and follow them on Instagram at jamesmaygallery. Kendra will be selecting five graduate and five undergraduate artists to appear on an upcoming episode of Studio Break to feature their work. The application is super simple. You submit a small fee, send an email with your website or portfolio or Instagram, and that's pretty much it. You are done, and the deadline is coming up May 15th. So if you want to apply, definitely head on over to studiobreak.com, check for the student competition page for details, and of course, Please help spread the word if you know some peers or other folks that would like to share their work on Studio Break that are currently enrolled or recently graduated from a visual arts program. Encourage them to apply. If you're new to Studio Break, head on over to studiobreak.com. We've got a bunch of episodes with different artists. Each of those episodes feature their work, links to their websites, and you can listen to the episodes right there on studiobreak.com or subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Facebook, so please like our page there. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break, and of course, follow on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. And with those brief announcements, let's dive right into this interview with Karen Mintzmoyer. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Karen Mintzmoyer. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? 
Excellent. And very excited to have you on the podcast. You were selected by our juror last year, Liz Tran, for the 2020 Professional Studio Break Competition. Yeah, I'm honored to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And you are currently a Pittsburgh resident, are you not? Mm-hmm, correct. Yep. And is that is that where you grew up in that area or? No, I actually grew up in north central Pennsylvania. I grew up in a pretty rural part of the state. Mm-hmm outside a small town called Milton, off of a little two-lane country road that I grew up. So it was, you know, fairly isolated where I was. And, you know, maybe that's why I ended up being an artist, because, you know, we were we were out in this area. There weren't really many other kids around to play with, and we had a ton of space and, you know, lots of unstructured time. And so we just had to kind of make up our own fun. Essentially, I had to entertain myself. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it was really the perfect setup for being an artist in adulthood. Yeah, I would imagine the idea of nature or kind of exploring systems kind of like you do in your work would be something that would be interesting and kind of growing up in that environment. Were you someone that was, you know, outdoors a lot hiking and, and stuff like that? We had a big garden when I was a kid, and so I I actually had my own section of the garden, and so I would, you know, grow all kinds of stuff. So even from the time that I was like, you know, 10 or 12, I've been a gardener. Mm -hmm. So that's been a part of my life for a long time. We had a big yard, and then there was also a woods behind our house, and so I would spend lots of time running around out in the woods we would build forts and, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we had, we had lots of space and lots of resources. And then there was, you know, my dad's garage, which was full of tools. So we could, I would go steal tools and find some wood and build random things. And it was really just lots of space and lots of time and lots of possibilities. I think a, a big, a big part of it was just all of the unstructured time mm-hmm being allowed to just invent things. I wasn't doing a whole lot of extracurricular activities with school or or things like that, where all of my time was kind of already structured. You know, that seems to be still how I'm comfortable spending my day. I really chafe at having my my time be structured by other people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, working on my own as an artist and being able to kind of plan my day out uh, as I see fit for some reason is really important to me. And maybe, maybe that comes out of the way I grew up and the way I spent a lot of my time outside of school. But yeah, I was just surrounded by nature, having my hands in the dirt, riding our bikes, running around out in the woods that's still something that I feel a big need for and a need to have in my life. You know, I, I feel a really strong need to always have a garden and always be very connected with the seasons and, and what's going on and planting seeds in spring and just being very aware of the seasonal cycle, you know? So I think that just comes from where I grew up and how I grew up. 
Yeah. You know, it's so funny that you talk about this idea of unstructured time and childhood. I mean, those are the types of things that I totally love, you know, the uh, dowel rod swords that I would make with my neighbor or, you know, floating boats down flooded sewer drains and things like that. Maybe that was, you know, the kind of thing that I kind of relate to is just having so much of that time. And it totally makes sense now, given, you know, what we're talking about, you know, having a day in the studio is like kind of like our dream come true, you know, nobody, yeah. nobody kind of bothering, bothering us. So. Um, mm -hmm. Well, and it sounds like, again, that was something super important and informative. I'm, I'm curious, were you someone that then, you know, kind of took a lot of art classes, like going to grade school, high school, that kind of thing? I took every art class that I had available to me. So I, I was basically doing art and band. I really didn't do any sports. I'm pretty klutzy and uncoordinated. <laughs> so <laughs> sports, sports were not... Uh, something I was going to get into. So yeah, it was, it was art and music for me. So I spent, you know, I think by my senior year, I was spending half of my day in the art room. So, you know, but I, I did okay with academics and stuff in, in high school too, but I, I definitely jammed my day with as much art as I could. Was that something that, you know, others were kind of encouraging you to approach or explore or something that you were kind of looking at in terms of like, oh, I could pursue this as like a, a passion or there was nobody in my family who was a professional artist. So I never had this example to look to, um, mm -hmm. that, you know, Oh, this was a reasonable thing to <laughs> expect <laughs> to be as an adult. You know, it was just, that was what I was interested in. And that was kind of my identity. And so I didn't know what else to do, I guess. Mm-hmm. There just wasn't anything else that I really seriously considered. There was maybe a brief blip of time in, I think, fourth or fifth grade where I thought maybe I wanted to be a botanist. Um, and that was just because I knew that botanists did something with plants, but I didn't, mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't quite know what. <laughs> and I think maybe that was, that lasted for a few weeks and then I, then I was over that. But yeah, art was just the only thing that was the thing that I did. My parents were supportive in me going to school for art, you know, and that they were, they were willing to let me go and they were willing to pay for my education, but they did ask repeatedly, what are you going to do to make a living? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I was a little concerned about that myself. I went to undergrad at Carnegie Mellon. And at that time, the way their program was structured, it's completely different now, but the way their program was structured was that art and design majors were in the freshman core mm -hmm. together. And then the second year you decided between art or design. I went into that and I and I majored in illustration because when my parents asked me, what are you going to do with this degree right. and how are you going to make a living? <laughs> like, oh, well, I, you know, I could get a job working for a magazine or I could be a freelance illustrator, you know, mm -hmm. and that's something that people do to make money. So I had enough support that I that I was able to go to art school. My parents mm -hmm. didn't talk me out of it. But, you know, there there was definitely some concern <laughs> on, sure, on sure. their part. And mine. You kind of described earlier about kind of taking every class that you could. Was that something that was really then exciting? I would imagine, you know, you're going to have a lot more facilities in terms of, you know, maybe taking your first sculpture class or, you know, other other 
obviously tools in terms of maybe digital processes or printmaking processes or things like that. But I would imagine it just kind of just opened up all of those those things that you could explore in terms of materials. And when I was in high school, um, you know, that was in the late 80s. So digital art wasn't a thing yet. Mm -hmm. The thing that um, I remember being kind of challenging and interesting was ceramics mm -hmm. and the way our art classes would were structured it was just you know advanced art so that we didn't have a, a big enough program for there to be a focus in printmaking mm -hmm. or anything like that so it was still you know things like ceramics and and drawing and painting and things like that but i do remember it, it being very exciting to get out the potter's wheel and try to throw a pot and I was terrible at it. <laughs> but yeah, being able to to take to take those classes and and be able to get hands dirty, I think was just really important to me to have you know some flip side to doing calculus and you know English and mm -hmm. writing essays mm -hmm. and things like that, you know, which, which I was okay at, you know, I was, I was a decent student, but I just, I really needed that, that other side where I was just playing in the mud and using paint and, and having that tactile experience, I think was really key. I did discover, you know, it was a rude awakening to me when I got to Carnegie Mellon in my freshman class. And I discovered that a lot of the other people in the class had taken advanced placement art in high school mm -hmm. and they had go gone to the summer pre-college program you know for art at Carnegie Mellon so they were they were actually way ahead of me and it had <laughs> you know it had a lot of stuff that I didn't have access to mm -hmm. so in a way I sort of felt like I was catching up it's a good motivator usually <laughs> yeah just to kind of influence each other or to kind of be like oh you're doing this I want to you know, do something like that. I'm going to see if I can do it my way or. Yeah. And, you know, Carnegie Mellon was a pretty competitive environment as well. And so that's got upsides and downsides. You know, it took me a little while to f kind of find my footing and find a sense of direction for myself. I decided to major in illustration and quickly discovered that I was really bad at it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so probably my third year, I would say I switched to painting as mm -hmm. a major, partially because that was the thing that I could switch into and still graduate on time mm -hmm. because I had already taken some painting classes. But yeah, then I then I focused on painting. And once I got up into the advanced painting classes where there was a little bit more leeway, I mm -hmm. think that's when I started to find my footing and, and start to find my voice a little bit. Because, you know, just as I discovered I wasn't good at illustration, I eventually figured out that I also wasn't a painter, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so started figuring out how to kind of push those boundaries and still be able to graduate as a painter. <laughs> right, right. And, and get my degree. One, one thing that helped me figure out what I was interested in and what I was what I was going to eventually focus on was I did a study abroad semester and mm -hmm. I studied at Temple Rome. So being able to spend a you know a semester in Rome was just a huge opportunity. And you know at that time that was the first time I'd ever been on a plane. Mm -hmm. That was the first time I'd ever flown was when I was going to spend three months in Italy. You know, so right. <laughs> well, if there's a time to go, <laughs> yeah, 
So as you can imagine, that was just like a huge, you know, earth shaking transformation for me. And, you know, what I was noticing being in Rome, you know, I, I know that a lot of painters talk about the light and the color and I noticed that, but the thing that I was really interested in was the space mm -hmm. and the architecture and the materials and the textures and how the architecture and the spaces related to the body and to human scale in a different way than the architecture in the city or the country relates to your body, you know, mm -hmm. it's just, a, it's a, it was a very different sense of scale that you experienced in especially these older parts of Rome with the little tight alleys and the small buildings. And then you go to an immense public plaza where the expanse opens up. Those were the kinds of things that I was really interested in and was noticing. And so then I, I was like, I think I'm a sculptor. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm a painter. I think I'm a sculptor. And so that was my first sort of clue as to where I was actually going to go. And so back in Carnegie Mellon, I'm a painting major, so I've got to finish. <laughs> I've got right. to finish the painting <laughs> degree because I can't afford an extra year. <laughs> you know, once I get into the advanced painting classes, I really started making constructions so what I would do was, you know, Carnegie Mellon has a big theater department. And so like many undergraduate students all across the nation, I did not have any money to pay for materials. Mm -hmm. So so I was always on the lookout for free materials. And the theater department, when they would strike a show, you know, all of those sets would go into a dumpster mm -hmm. outside the building. So there would be this huge dumpster filled with wood and canvas and all kinds of other materials. And so I would go out and raid the dumpster mm. and get all this canvas and all of this wood. And conveniently enough, the canvas already had paint on it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I didn't have to come up with a painting to put on it. <laughs> so, so what I would do is, you know, make these, you know, usually box-like or rectangular or frame-like wooden constructions. And then I would take this used canvas and stretch over it and choose areas that had smudges, you know, smears of paint on it, dirt. And I would just choose an area that I thought was interesting. And that's what I would use as the painting. Mm -hmm. So I was really, you know, kind of working with it as a found object and, working with found marks on the canvas. And that was really the first time when I started, you know, really finding my footing and, and having a, a sense of, of direction in my work, you know, as an undergrad. Um, and it was really like, well, you know, my thinking was, well, it's, it's canvas stretched over a wood frame. So mm -hmm. it qualifies <laughs> as a painting, right? Sure. <laughs> and you know, it's that, you know, I, I, it got accepted. So <laughs> yeah, that was my tactic. Yeah. I would imagine it's interesting to think about that as the, you know, experience that kind of set you in a, in a totally different direction. Mm -hmm. 
I would imagine then, what, was there like a lot of break but going back for your MFA? Because I would imagine, again, just kind of thinking about like, oh, I'm a sculptor, you know, I'm interested in 3D, like I want to kind of build things and explore this idea. I would imagine that's something that you want to kind of really be able to focus on as opposed then to kind of feeling like you were, you know, studying illustration and then painting and then that, you know, wasn't quite the same thing. I actually took, uh, I took nine years in between my BFA and my MFA. I stayed in Pittsburgh during that time, you know, was working as, you know, an art installer, gallery attendant, doing administrative stuff at various nonprofits. So I was seeing art institutions and galleries, you know, from from the inside as well and, mm-hmm. and learning how those processes worked. And that was a valuable experience. But I was also you know, making art Mm -hmm. that whole time. And, you know, there was a period right after I graduated, probably, you know, I think a lot of people go through this, you know, if you, you get out of art school and then, you know, that, that sense of structure and that level of input and that level of oversight that you had on your work is suddenly gone. And so you need to, figure out who you are (laughs) as the sort of free agent, you know? And so, you know, I found myself an apartment that had a big extra room that I could use as a studio and just started making small sculptures. You know, a lot of it incorporated found objects and wire and pieces of glass. I made some small mechanical pieces. I did some actually, you know, kinetic installations during this time. You know, I was making art, you know, throughout that whole period. I guess I just had this faith if it was time for me to go back for an MFA, I would know it. Mm -hmm. And I was just going to wait until I knew it was time. You know, eventually, I think it was 2003, you know, I'd gotten to this point where I felt like my work was pretty good. I felt pretty confident that I could get in someplace. You know, I had, you know, quite a few shows and some grants and some other awards on my resume. So I felt good about what I was doing and I felt like I was ready. And so, you know, I applied to a few different places. I think I got into four different schools and I decided to go to University of Buffalo. Mm hmm. You know, part of that was the location. It's four hour drive from Pittsburgh. My, you know, my partner was going to remain in Pittsburgh and be living and working there. You know, that was the other thing is I, I had struggled so much in undergrad that I, I wanted to wait until I really knew exactly what I wanted out of a grad program mm-hmm. before I went. By that time, I knew that I, I knew that I wanted teaching experience. I knew that. I wanted a two-year program, and I wanted enough leeway. You know, I knew I wanted to focus on sculpture, but I wanted enough leeway that I could change direction or incorporate other things into sculpture and be cross-disciplinary if I wanted to do that. And so University of Buffalo offered that. You know, and I also got a scholarship and a teaching assistantship, and so it became really affordable for me too. taking those nine years and sort of living in the adult world and mm-hmm. paying <laughs> bills and paying off my student loans from undergrad. It made it really clear to me 
that one of the biggest factors that influences an artist's ability to make art and continue making art is money. Absolutely. And so I was not willing to go into a huge amount of debt for any art degree, you know, because I had heard that people were going into 50000 80000 $100,000 for an art degree. Once you have that much debt, you're pretty much locked into finding a tenured teaching job, you know, like mm-hmm. that. And paying if you can find it. <laughs> if you can find it, yeah. And I just, I didn't want to lock myself into that. I wanted to be as free of debt as possible because I knew that that, that would have a big impact on my ability to continue making work. So, yeah, so that's that's part of the reason that I took such a long time off was to have as solid a portfolio of work as possible and hopefully get a scholarship and, and teaching assistantship and you know, that it paid off. Yeah, absolutely. And it, again, is, it strikes me as like this own education, you know, like you said, like a real world education or like an adult education of, you know, how to function in that. And then obviously all the places that you worked and then mm-hmm. making work all kind of feed that, that idea. Mm-hmm. I'm curious too, like, you know, as, as you kind of had that diverse kind of background and working in the arts, were there artists that you started thinking about or looking at, you know, relative to, I guess, more three-dimensional based artists that you kind of were kind of drawn to? Because again, it's interesting coming from that background of illustration to painting, you know, and I would imagine that changed like just all the art that you saw in, in between that period of time. You know, Christo, I think is the first artists that I can remember really making an impact on me. And the first time that happened was actually in an undergraduate art history class. You know, it was the typical thing, big lecture hall, comfortable seats, you'd go in, it was always a little too warm, you know, they turn mm-hmm. the lights <laughs> off, and we'd all fall asleep. <laughs> immediately. <Right. laughs> so I remember nothing about this class until one day the professor turns on a video of Christo's running fence mm-hmm. and the making of that project. And I woke up and I was like, what is that? Because it was really exciting, you know, (laughs) they were out in the fields and there was this huge team of hundreds of people putting this project together. And, you know, the moment that sticks in my mind, you know, they had been had been planning this project for years and done, you know, the environmental impact studies and worked with the town planners and worked with dozens of property owners And it had been this huge, long planning process. And and here were the final moments. They had hundreds of volunteers putting these fabric fence panels together and clipping them onto the wires. And the cops were coming, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) and they were all in their walkie talkies with the other volunteers like, hurry, hurry, clip it together. We have to get it together for at least a few minutes, you know. So they were trying to get the fence up, you know, and get some photographs and at least have it up for, you know, a few minutes or a few hours before the authorities told them to take Mm it. Down, you know, and this was just much more exciting than all of these paintings and bronze sculptures, you know, sitting on pedestals. And it was like, oh my god, you know. So that was really the first artist whose work I was just, you know, really captivated by. You know, so maybe part of that was also that it was out in nature and not in a gallery. 
his practice is something that I return to again and again. Alice Acock's work just knocks me out. The complexity and the scale and the ambition and the quality of the fabrication and a lot of her work ties into nature as well, you know, and examines natural forms like cyclones and storm systems. Martin Purrier is another inspiration. Mm-hmm. Craft is something that I think about a lot in my work and, and how finished or unfinished something should be. I love the way that he can have such a high level of craft and it's so finished and it's so beautiful, but it it's not at the expense of the conceptual part mm-hmm. and all of the symbolism that he wraps in there. And, you know, there's many layers that you can dig down in his work, you know, and it's not just about the material and the finish, although that's part of it. And that's, that's what draws you in and gets you to look at it long enough and then you realize some of the symbols in in what he's creating and you're like oh you know he's using some some darker imagery and he's getting at some really tough issues but he's pulling you in with that beautiful really skilled craftsmanship you know Mm -hmm. and so uh he's an inspiration as well I'm especially kind of curious then, you know, like in terms of kind of, you know, being in that graduate school kind of experience where you're really kind of, um, you know, you're waiting to go back, you're waiting for the perfect time. And then you're essentially really focused, I would imagine, in terms of kind of working. Was that something then where you kind of immediately started, you know, playing in terms of all the, I guess, ways that you could kind of utilize these these systems to kind of explore? I noticed one of the materials that's really interesting to me is the the use of like styrofoam or, you know, plastic or these kind of artificial materials, but then also these kind of natural materials of the the plants. And obviously we spoke very early on about, you know, having a, a garden when you were very young. But was that something then that you started experimenting with in graduate school that kind of turned into some of those uh, maybe works from the earlier, like, 2000s? Yeah, grad school is exactly when I started doing that. So, you know, I had my little grad school studio, when I first got there, I was kind of trying to get my footing and figure out what I was going to work on. What can I make in my little my little studio space? What's meaningful to me right now? I had done a piece that I had shown in Pittsburgh called Grounded. And it was a styrofoam packaging for an iMac computer. So it was this sort of square capsule kind of shape like a rounded rectangle and you opened it up and you know there was little sections in the corner and then there was big central section i turned that into a mobile landscape Mm -hmm. i think that that came out of just being uprooted from you know this city where i'd come to live i was now living in buffalo in an apartment knew I wasn't going to be there that long. So, you know, I was in this sort of transient kind of place Mm -hmm. that I wasn't used to, you know, so I I was not feeling grounded. You know, I made this piece, this mobile landscape, and the idea was that you can have this landscape and you can drive around with it, you know, in the backseat of your car and it can travel with you. And it had a little pond in the center with duckweed and it had four, you know, four trees in the corners Um, and some grass. And after I made that piece, 
I, I kept seeing styrofoam, like the molded styrofoam packaging pieces, like appliances and computers and things come in. I knew there was something there that I needed to explore. I wasn't sure what. So I, (laughs) so I just started collecting styrofoam and, you know, amassing this big pile of styrofoam in my studio, you know, figuring if I just look at it long enough, I'll figure out what, what it is that I need to explore. And it sort of occurred to me that they were all, they were like little landscapes. It was a nice encapsulation of, you know, sort of the way our larger landscape is impacted by our presence. You mm-hmm. know, we cut into and shape the natural environment to make it serve our needs. You know, we we cut square holes into the earth to make building foundations and build buildings. We pave roads over the landscapes. We impose a city grid onto, you know, an organic landscape. So I I liked looking at these sort of shaped styrofoam pieces as small landscapes that had sort of been shaped by human intervention and human activity. This eventually evolved into my thesis show, which was shown in the in the university gallery in what's called the Lightwell Gallery. And it's a two-story high space with a skylight in the top. And then there's a, a little balcony on the second floor that looks out over the space. So I made an indoor nature park in the gallery. And so for, I don't know, six months leading up to <laughs> the show, I was collecting all the styrofoam, you know, like the school bought new computers for the computer lab. So I got all that. Mm-hmm. My husband <laughs> was back in Pittsburgh. He was saving styrofoam, you know, from the place that he worked. And so when he would come up to visit, he would show up with a whole truckload of styrofoam. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so we were piling up the styrofoam. And so, uh, so I created this, this indoor nature park and it had, you know, different geographic zones. There was a mountain that had small pine trees and mosses. There was a prairie that had grasses. There was a swampland with water and, and water plants. There was a desert that had cacti and sand in it. And then there was a boardwalk that wound through the space. And then the second floor balcony became the scenic overlook for the park. And I installed, you know, artificial lighting and everything. You know, that really kind of became the thread of my work for the next few years. For the next few years out after grad school, I continued to work with styrofoam, plastic packaging, you know, things that already had those shapes, either with the actual packaging or tracing the shapes mm-hmm. and designs found in the packaging and then using those as the designs for other things. You know, I did a series called Plans for Landscapes where I, I, I traced the shapes found in styrofoam packaging and then cut that out of the grass paper like they sell for train sets. Mm-hmm. I would cut those designs out of the grass paper and then mount them on board and then title them after whatever kind of landscape I thought they looked like. You know, so one was an office park, one was a wetland, you know, there were a few different formal gardens. 
and things like that. And then one of those actually became sort of landscape design that I did in Pittsburgh for what was called the Pittsburgh Biennial at the Pittsburgh Center for the Arts, which is no longer running. It's not their exhibitions, but um, so they have they where the art center is located. There's a city park right outside the art center, and so I took one of those landscape plans and laid it out in landscape edging about 30 feet wide in the grass. And then I would mow parts of the design and then leave other parts of it grow. So the parts that were green in the landscape plan image, I allowed those to grow for the entire four month run of the exhibition. And the other parts I would mow so that it matched, you know, the rest of the park. Mm-hmm. And so what you could see was you know, if you let those plants grow, then you can see the diversity of the natural plants that are there. You know, if you mow it, it just looks like a lawn. It looks like one plant. It looks like a monoculture. But if you let it go, there's, you know, wildflowers that come up. There are different kinds of grasses. There were wild strawberries that came up. A family of rabbits moved in and lived there. Dogs would immediately, you know, run through it when they saw it. It was just kind of a, about exposing that that diversity that's hidden by our our maintenance practice <laughs> that we have. It's interesting to think about the differences between those two environments, like the traditional kind of gallery space and the way that you're kind of exploring ideas of uh, landscape, how we see it and construct it, but then also to physically go out there and then essentially make your own construction. Again, I would imagine that would be kind of what got your interest in doing more public works as well as the traditional, you know, art, art venue spaces. I think that I've always kind of struggled with having galleries be the main outlet for my work. Mm -hmm. You know, for the early part of my career, before I went to grad school, I was, I was really just showing my work in galleries, you know, applying for open calls doing juried shows, things like that, because that's, you know, that was the opportunities that were available. And that's what I knew about, you know, like, I'm, I'm an artist, I make work, and I show it in galleries. And that's what I do. And I kind of got frustrated with that at a certain point, it didn't feel like a very satisfying experience. Showing my work in galleries, you, you pour just tons of work into something. And then you have a show and your friends show up and they say, hey, great show, you know, and then the show's over. And I was like, well, I spent three months of my life (laughs) working on this. (laughs) Was that worth it? You know, so I kind of went through that multiple times over the years and, you know, at a certain point realized that I really needed to expand my practice to you know, like just showing my work in nonprofit galleries was not a career and it was not sustainable. And so, you know, once I started finding some other venues for my work and once I once I got my first public art project and the first few projects, they were just satisfying in a different way than the gallery work was. And sure, part of it is probably the practical concerns because, you know, as a sculptor, you, you're dealing with physical objects. Mm -hmm. So you've got to have a studio, you've got to have tools, you've got to have equipment, all of that takes money. 
And then you've got these sculptures. Okay, you make a sculpture, you put it in a show, you know, you're showing your work in a nonprofit gallery, you're not going to sell a sculpture, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, and a lot of my work was made out of trash at that point. So you're not going to sell a trash sculpture, you're going to get it back. And then you're going to live with it until you decide to do something with it. You know, whether that's reuse the materials in another piece or you recycle it or, you know, whatever you do with it. So you've got all the conceptual thought you may have put into it, into this artwork or this sculpture. Here sits this object that you have to contend with, you mm -hmm. know? Sure. So, <laughs> sculpture is just very sort of obstinate in that way. It's like, yeah, you can like weave all of the, thinking that you want about it, but, you know, here I am taking up space. So <laughs> deal with me. And so, you know, I guess doing public art and doing commissions kind of in a practical sense works out very well because the artwork has somewhere to go. Mm -hmm. And so that solves a, a big problem. But also I realized just seeing my work out in public, you know, I especially when I did a, a bike rack, which maybe not, doesn't seem like a big deal, but I think that was, that was sort of a turning point for me. I did a bike rack in um, downtown Pittsburgh called the lightning cloud bike rack. And it's a, it's basically just a symbol for a thunderstorm, like you would see on a weather map. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a logo, you know, type Thunder clouds, a little cartoon cloud with three lightning bolts coming out of the bottom, and it's stainless steel. That was the first time that I think I thought a little bit more strategically about why am I saying yes to this project? You know, I think a lot of the time up to that point, it was just any time a show opportunity came along, I just said yes to whatever was offered. And that was, you know, by that time, I was starting to think a little bit more about well, what do I want out of this? You know, how is this going to be meaningful to me as an artist? And and one thing that it offered was it was an excuse to learn to use a new tool. So at that time, we had a community access workshop called Tech Shop in Pittsburgh. So it was a, a membership workshop. They had tons of awesome tools that you could learn to use, like a full wood shop and a full metal shop. And so this was an excuse for me to learn to use the water jet. So I learned to use this new tool and, you know, my husband and I built this bike rack, put it out there and it was really satisfying mm -hmm. going to downtown Pittsburgh and being able to point at something on the street and say, yeah, I did that. And look, someone has their bike attached to it. It's very satisfying to me to know that I made something in the built environment that people are seeing and maybe using during the course of their daily life, mm -hmm. rather than it being this sort of self-selecting audience that's making the effort to go to a gallery to visit a show, just having it be out there, part of the daily city life felt meaningful to me in a different way. And I'm not at all trying to downplay artists who enjoy showing their work in galleries. And I still show my work in galleries, but having that public component has has turned out to be really important to me. Well, one of the things that I think about too is that a lot of your pieces and I'm thinking of like the the habitat piece which is the you know kind of massive version of that kind of like the styrofoam box that becomes a maze 
mm-hmm. or even the cloud form or the migrating birds. Um, you know, I could imagine a number of these pieces also making really interesting, like public, you know, sculptures or installations as well, just because I see those, those connections a little bit, you know, in terms of the way that people might kind of interact with it. And then, yeah, I'll be totally honest. I want to see habitat somewhere just to kind of mess with people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like walking through a, like walking through some area where it's kind of unexpected. But I, I think, again, that's something that's really kind of interesting. And I don't know. I mean, like even pieces like there's this one, and I know that I'm probably jumping around a little bit, but you know, there's, there's some more gallery style pieces like the Hey Narcissus piece, mm-hmm. which has all the, kind of like mirror components mm-hmm. that again it strikes me again that idea of like having a viewer participate or you know just regular people kind of participate in your work is something that's that's really interesting the hey narcissus piece was done for actually a gallery that's in my neighborhood near my house and they were celebrating their 40th anniversary around the same time i was celebrating my 40th birthday mm-hmm. and so you know i was feeling sort of introspective about (laughs) the whole situation of turning 40 and whatnot. And at a certain point, I was like, I have to just stop looking inward and stop, you know, navel gazing and, you know, turn my focus outward and toward the future. And so that's, you know, that's partially where Hey Narcissus came from. So it's a it's a tree branch that's mounted on the wall, and then there are a hundred small mirrors instead of leaves. And so all of those mirrors are focused so that if you stand at a certain point in front of the piece, you see fragments of your face in a hun- in all the mirrors. You know, you're reflected back to yourself. And so you know, if you want to see something else, you kind of have to just move on to a different <laughs> spot. <laughs> you have to stop standing there and you just have to move. I do like to create pieces that folks have to interact with to some extent. Maybe part of that comes from having worked in galleries and having the opportunity to watch people looking at art. Mm-hmm. If it's a, like an artist run space, sometimes, you know, you're expected as a as an exhibiting artist to to do some gallery attendant hours and, and volunteer. And so I think I was doing some volunteer hours at a gallery where I was showing that piece grounded that I mentioned before, that mm-hmm. small portable garden. And it was really fun. You know, people would kind of walk around the gallery and they would they would look at the paintings on the wall, you know, and they would stand back a couple feet Maybe put their hand on their chin, maybe get a little closer and look at a detail, and then they move on to the next one, and they stand back and put their hand on their chin, and then they would get to the garden, and some people would just, like, stick their face in it and smell it, you know, <laughs> like, really, like, really got into this, like, sensory kind of experience that was different than the way that they were looking at most of the other stuff, and I want to be able to kind of trigger that impulse to get out of the stand back and look at it kind of thing. And, you know, frankly, if you're, if you're doing art out in the public realm, people are going to interact with it. Some people are going to interact with it in the ways that you expect them to, or in the way that you designed the piece for them to interact with it. And other people are going to interact with it however they want. Mm -hmm. Sure. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So, so there's kind of two levels to the interaction. You, you, I design pieces that encourage people to either interact with the piece 
or to sort of engage with their environment or notice something about their neighborhood that they didn't notice before or notice some element about how nature is present or suppressed or ignored in that environment you know but then other sometimes people choose to engage in other ways <laughs> right right um, and you have to plan for that as well so there's the planning for the engagement that you intend and then there's also planning for the the unintended engagement you know so you've got two spheres of activity that you need to design for it's interesting too like the playfulness of some of them too i was going to say the eight foot waterfall pieces you know maybe hopefully something that you don't have people interacting with and that they attempt to climb up it you know there's like a sense of whimsy to it that i think is just really kind of fun and i think that's something that kind of adds you know probably interest to you too in terms of you know, how you come up with uh, how you're going to explore some of these ideas. And maybe that's something that, you know, we haven't talked about, you know, how is it that you kind of, you know, maybe anticipate a piece for, for something like that? Or is that just something that, you know, you're writing about or you get an idea in your, in your mind or have an experience? Um, maybe talk a little bit about that idea of how a piece like that might come about. A piece like the eight foot waterfall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that piece was probably a collision of a couple of different things. Some of my work comes out of the, the inspiration might come out of an object or a material. You know, in, in the case of the styrofoam pieces, it was generated by the styrofoam material. And in the eight foot waterfall piece, you know, I had a ladder around my studio. I've done some different little fountain pieces and pieces that involve water you know, like the cloud piece that misted. And so I was thinking about fountains. And then there was also something interesting about the ladder at the same time. And I was also looking at Olafur Eliasson's work. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen his uh, public piece that he did. It was a big waterfall, but I think he used a scaffolding. So there's a scaffolding with a real waterfall coming over it. And I love his work. It's re it's really an inspiration. But at the same time, I wanted to have a little bit more of a sense of humor and not, <laughs> not, not take myself so seriously or not make the art so serious. So this is kind of like the everyman's version of, <laughs> uh, you know, the Eliasson's waterfall, the big grandiose waterfall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the blue collar version of that. So maybe that's a, an encapsulation of kind of how I view myself in a way. I, I never kind of envisioned myself being the artist that took over the New York art world or, you know, or anything like that. I, I guess I just kind of view myself as a little more down to earth. Mm -hmm. And so it's maybe an odd fit with, <laughs> with the art world in a way. And so it was a way to kind of tackle some of the issues that I was interested in, but maybe have a sense of humor too. I feel like I've made a really successful piece if I can incorporate humor into it as well. You know, sometimes I feel like maybe I get a little bit too serious about something. So I, I need to make some humorous pieces now and again to, to kind of balance it out. Well, and I would think just because like any artist, you know, you kind of are developing work over years and there's, you know, common threads and things come back around. So, you know, I really enjoy the kind of more recent series um, from the Divide series, which kind of feature this kind of architectural framework. 
I don't know what kind of materials are you using in these? Because again, it just almost seems like these objects or these other things that are kind of interacting with them. Like again, it almost kind of reminds me of like a you know, in some of them like tarps or discarded materials. But I don't know again if those are found things that you're kind of building the scaffolding over or it's wooden scaffolding structures, and then the the rock like material that you're seeing there is actually a mix of paper mache and plaster, and I was really playing with the idea of solidity and surface versus what is behind the surface, thinking about how we engage with the landscape. And it tends to be in this very superficial kind of way. You know, if the landscape looks beautiful, we assume that everything's fine. You know, (laughs) like if we don't, if we don't see trash and we don't see a giant strip mine, we assume, oh, mm-hmm. this place is unpolluted and, you know, untouched by man. Well, no place is untouched by man. You know, there's microplastic particles up at the tops of the highest mountains and at the bottom of the ocean. Like we've touched, we've touched all of it at this point. Seeing and consuming the landscape with our eyes is a main way that we kind of process the landscape And so having landscapes that look beautiful is still something that's very important to us. We value having these pristine looking landscapes. We like knowing that they're there so that we can go and sort of reconnect with this thing that's larger than us and, you know, sort of the pure origins of our existence. You know, it's comforting to know that those places are still there. And so it's important that they look pristine. And so... So there's that ideas. And then um, I found this photo series online and I don't remember the name of the artist, but there was a, it was a photo series of these huge billboards in Thailand, enormous billboards. And they were all sort of falling apart. The advertisements had, had peeled off and blown away long ago. And so it was just these beautiful scaffolding structures with some solid areas of wood and and uh, the signage structure still attached, but then there were holes in the signage structure. So at certain places, it was a solid surface, but then in certain places, there was a punch through where you could see the scaffolding structure behind. And I was just really captivated by those photos because of the the interplay between the surface and the underlying structure. And also because... I'm interested in, you know, it was this visual essay of sort of nature taking back mm-hmm. these structures that that man had built. And I'm I've always been just really captivated by, you know, any kind of built environment that's now sort of falling into ruin and is being taken back by by nature. So that photo series is, you know, kind of what inspired a lot of the visual aspects of those pieces. The piece is called Declaration. Um, mm-hmm. It's about eight feet tall, and it's got this scaffolding structure. And that, it's almost like a billboard. So it's this tall scaffolding, and it's got this big black rock up at the top. And when you walk into the gallery, you see it from the front, and you, and it looks solid, and it looks really heavy. And like it's this big, heavy thing up on top of this very spindly scaffolding. But it's placed so that there's enough space that you can walk around it. So once you walk around the back, 
you see that it's just a facade. Mm-hmm. It's just the surface of the rock on front, and then in the back, it's completely open and it's hollow. And the way I made it was I took some mold making material and I went down the street from my studio, and there were some landscaping rocks. And I just took surface molds of the rocks and I took the molds back to my studio. And then I cast this plaster material into the molds and just made, you know, these thin texture casts of this rock texture. And I would make two or three copies or four copies of the same mold until the mold material started breaking down. And then once I had a collection of all these little bits and pieces of rock surface, I would I would stitch them together into a giant rock. So it's sort of like a cut and paste mm-hmm. process like you might use in Photoshop, but, you know, in three dimensions. It looks like a real rock and it's based on a real rock, but it's a made up rock. And if you look really closely, you ca- you could find the repeats of some of the little texture areas, but you know, it, it's hard to see. So, so it's this copy and pasted and stitched together rock, you know, just based on the surface that you can see. Um, and that's how the other pieces were constructed as well. Uh, it was a similar kind of rock surface texture. Yeah. I would imagine again, there's a lot of that kind of like wanting to go up and, and investigate, you know, I mean, again, I'm, you know, obviously we're in a pandemic, but I'm my initial reaction is I want to touch these things, you know, to kind of yeah. think about that that texture, that surface. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's something that you know, in my mind, even brings up kind of more current work in terms of the kind of like water access series. Maybe it'd be better to have you explain it. So maybe talk a little bit about the the public access series. So the public access series was one that I started during the pandemic quarantine last summer when you know Pittsburgh was kind of in under stay at home orders and we were all kind of wondering what was going to happen and you know I was pretty anxious and stressed out <laughs> like a lot of sure. people I a lot of people were just needing to go out and look at water you know look at the river the ocean whatever body of water was handy because it you know for a lot of people it just has this you know calming effect you know again it kind of performs that function of allowing us to reconnect with something that feels larger and more primordial the surface of the water is always changing it's always moving you're never going to see the exact same pattern twice but those shapes and those patterns are always familiar you can you can recognize it right They're shapes that are sort of, they hover in between representation and abstraction. They're not something specific, but we we still know what it is. It's still recognizable. And so that's some of the things that I'm interested in. You know, I had this urge to kind of go out and and be near the water like a lot of other people. I went out, I took my camera, and I just started photographing the surface of the water at places where the public accesses the water. And, you know, Pittsburgh uh, is the city of three rivers. And so, you know, for me, it's, it's mostly rivers that is the most accessible to me. So I was, you know, going to different places along the river and photographing the water from those points. 
some of those locations, the locations varied widely. You know, some of them were places near yacht clubs. Other places were trash-strewn boat launches near a steel mill. You know, so some of them were, you know, very wealthy neighborhoods, others very poor neighborhoods, you know, very differing kind of amenities available at those locations. Still, the water is the same. The water looks the same everywhere. The water is going to flow from this point to the other point. I was really interested in the water being this more universal connecting element to all those different kinds of locations and the different kinds of people that use those locations. So I was interested in that. The format that it takes, you know, the burned wood, that really comes from a few pieces that I made a few years ago. The charred wood came from me learning about a Japanese process called shosugiban. Mm-hmm. And that those words refer specifically to Japanese cedar siding. So what I do is not specifically shosugiban, but it was inspired by that. And it's a technique that's been around for centuries. And it's something that seems destructive, but is actually protective. And what they do is they take these cedar planks, these cedar siding planks, and they char the outside of the wood. And so... What that does is it actually makes the siding more fire resistant Mm -hmm. and insect repellent. And it also protects it from sun damage. And so, you know, what seems destructive is actually adding this sort of protective scar tissue in a way around the wood. So I really liked that it was this, you know, both destroying and protecting. We tend to especially recently, we often think of things in a very binary way. Mm -hmm. And this is really like two things at the same time. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a combination of things. And so I was really captivated by that idea of destruction and protection kind of working together. And I liked the image of the burned wood and the water kind of being married together into one thing. And so what I started doing was taking these photographs of the water surface, turning them into vector files, laser cutting them out of wood panels, and then charring the wood. So it's really, um, it's a photograph that's been translated into three-dimensional materials and then charred. What's not necessarily obvious when you look at these, a lot of people think that they're looking at a print. It's actually charred wood that you're looking at. So the surface is very satiny and it's this very deep black and you can still see some of the character of the wood evidence. You can see some knots in it and you can see some of the wood grain, which kind of changes directions. So the personality of the wood is still evident even after you burn it, but then the character of the water is there as well. Yeah, I mean again they're they're just really interesting and I think relate so well to, you know, so many of the things that you've talked about today. And I would imagine again even though I know we've all been kind of uh, cooped up, there's probably all sorts of projects and and things maybe that you're kind of working towards in this this year or this time or coming up. Yeah, I um I've got a show. I'm in a group show at the Chautauqua Institute up in New York. It's called Materials Redefined. And it's curated by Judy Berry, 
Um, and that's um, in Chautauqua, New York. And that show runs from June 28th to August 17th. And if you've not been to Chautauqua, it's a pretty interesting little place. It's kind of a little, I'll call it a resort town on a lake. It's kind of like summer camp for adults. They have lectures and music and art shows for a couple months every summer. And so, you know, hundreds of people just converge on the town and they listen to lectures and take workshops and and see art. And so I've got a, I'm in a show there. Um, and then I've got a few different commissions and public art pieces that I'm working on. I've got a, a public art piece in Philadelphia in the Fishtown neighborhood, if you're familiar with Philly at all, they're building a new community pool. It's the Letterer Pool. And so I'm creating a piece that will go on the fencing surrounding the pool, kind of linking the pool with the nearby Delaware River. And then I've got a couple projects here in Pittsburgh that I'm working on. Um, I'll be doing some public art for a local park here that's being refurbished. That's just in the very beginning phases. So I'll be working with some of the local community residents uh, around the park to, you know, do some community engagement and and help design the artwork for the park. And then I'm also on a design team to design some bus shelters uh, for a local neighborhood here in Pittsburgh, too. So that'll be a new a new type of project for me. Excellent. You know, it sounds like you're really active with a lot of different projects. And I like thinking back earlier where you were talking about not just being only an artist that shows in the gallery, but you're kind of doing these public works and likewise, you know, allows you to kind of make a living doing it and kind of exploring what you want to explore. So it's been fascinating talking to you. And I'm assuming that, you know, obviously the, the website is, is generally up to date, but I'm assuming that you're pretty anst- active on Instagram and, and kind of sharing process and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my Instagram, just at uh, Karen.MintzMoyer. So easy, easy to find there. And, you know, I, sh- I show some finished works, but I do occasionally show some process shots as well. Um, if it's something that I can show process shots of. Um, so you can find me there. And then I I do also post to Facebook as well. Well, again, thanks so much for, for telling us all about your work. And obviously, it's been a, a pleasure just to be able to talk to you this morning about it. Well, thanks for having me on, David. It's been a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks again to Karen for joining me. Check out her website, KarenMintzmoyer.com. And once again, the group exhibition, Materials Redefined, opens at the Chautauqua Visual Arts Gallery, and that's curated by Judy Berry. The show opens June 27th and runs through August 25th. You can go to studiobreak.com to find a link. And, of course, be sure to follow Karen on Instagram at Karen.MintzMoyer for all sorts of updates about work and exhibitions. Note once again that our 2021 student competition is now open, so if you are currently enrolled or recently graduated in 2020 from a visual arts program, you're a BA, BFA, MA, MFA student, please apply to the competition. Our juror this year is Kendra Balgren, who is the director and curator at James May Gallery. You should definitely check that out. Again, jamesmaygallery.com and at jamesmaygallery on Instagram. Kendra will be selecting five graduate and five undergraduate visual artists to appear on an upcoming episode of Studio Break. Again, all mediums are welcome, so check it out at studiobreak.com. Just look under the competition page to apply. It's very easy. You submit a small fee, an email with your portfolio slash Instagram, and you are done. 
And of course, if you know anybody that should be applying to this exhibition, please help share and spread the word. We really appreciate it. The deadline to submit is May 15th. If you enjoyed today's episode, you've never heard of Studio Break, head on over to studiobreak.com and check out some of the episodes that you missed out on. Once again, each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and of course, you can listen right there or just subscribe to the podcast. And in that way, you've always got something to listen to while you're working away in the studio. Recent episodes include 253 with Anastasia Sitnikova, and she has a thesis exhibition that opens today on August 16th and runs to the 23rd with a artist talk from 6 to 7.30 p.m., and that's once again at Gallery 400 at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Anastasia is a conceptually driven artist that explores a variety of sculptural installation and mixed media works, and that was a great episode to check out. Also, we recently featured Wansi Young, who is a figurative painter, and we talk about memory and all sorts of things in episode 252. Definitely check out her episode as well. Once again, great listening to keep the mind sharp while you're working away in the studio. If you want to follow or reach out, be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter, at Studio Break, and of course on Instagram. It's always great to hear from listeners, at Studio underscore Break. So give a shout out there. Music today by Golden Shadow, which features myself, Ben Cohan, and Brett Beery. You can check out Ben's paintings and follow him at mbencohan.com and also mbencohanstudio on Instagram. You can check out Brett Beery's album and music at Brett Beery on Instagram. If you want to see some of my paintings, of course, jump on over to Instagram and follow me at David Linway or on Twitter at David Linway. You can also find me on Facebook. And of course, you can check out my website, davidlinway.com if you want to see some paintings. And that's a wrap. We did another episode of Studio Break. Hope that you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. And, of course, if you do, please be sure to say hello. Otherwise, have a wonderfully productive studio. The weather is nice. The birds are chirping. Stay safe out there. We'll talk to you real soon.